Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 92. Yet again, Dr. Oddity Bargava and Ms. Martha Fowler joining us. I'll get into it in a second. Would you two please introduce yourself? Uh, Dr. Bargava, would you please introduce yourself to the audience and then Martha? Yes, um, thanks for inviting me again, Tommy. Um, I am a professor at uh, the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a molecular biologist as well as a, uh, I, I like to call myself a systems biologist because I look at interaction between different organs, but at um, cellular and molecular levels. So it's uh, uh, giving life to the meaning of molecular biology in terms of uh, looking at physiological functions. And uh, uh, as you know, I have worked with mRNA uh, very intricately, used several uh, uh, techniques of mRNA to study uh, cell function. And of course, as we know, the mRNA vaccine is uh, in some ways looking at cellular function using um, molecular biology tools. Martha? And, oh, sorry. Dr. Bargava, sorry. Did I cut you off? No, you didn't. Okay. It's going to hand it over to Martha. Oh, okay, Martha. Hi, um, I'm Martha Fowler. I am a current graduate student at Rice University in the bioengineering department. I um, previously have worked in the nanomedicine field as a research technician, uh, where we were developing nanoparticle platforms to treat pediatric brain tumors. Um, However, my expertise are more focused on tissue engineering. I did help with the nanoparticle um, uh, experiments, um, but I was focused on creating a tissue engineered platform to where we could screen these nanoparticles in on the bench top. So both of you wildly more intelligent than myself. And I do a podcast from an apartment. So we've got that all rounded out. So Dr. Uh, Dr. Bargov has been on here twice before, episode 542, which was just you, and episode 543, which was you and Dr. Malone. And a lot of people have got, I've gotten a lot of feedback from this episode because it's not, they see the name McCullough or Malone and people instantly take sides. They're a saint, they're a demon. And to me, what I did like was the middle ground, was my aunts who are nurses, uh, several of my best friends who are physicians, uh, some are pharmacists, some are researchers. They all kind of pointed out the middle ground that I liked because on one side we have people saying there's no adverse reactions. These things are safe and effective and it's all you know honey and unicorns. On the other side, it's these are the clot shots. These will kill you and everyone you love. And then there's what are the adverse reactions? Myocarditis, is it is it mild? Is it not? Are you going to get a brain tumor? Are you not? To me, and well, more importantly to the intelligent people I know, they pointed out, well, why are they happening at all? And not, you know, what's going on in the body. Why are they happening? Why are they not happening to everyone? Because on one hand, a lot of people are having adverse reactions. On the other hand, statistically, you won't have an adverse reaction which made me think of episode 542 with you. 
the uneven and unequal distribution of the mRNA, I guess, delivery package within the lipid nanoparticles. And you talked specifically about why it is not an evenly distributed and proportional, I guess, dose to everyone who gets it. Could you go into that, Dr. Bargava? Is that responsible for it? Or were people who were going to get the vaccine, were they going to have a reaction regardless of the amount of the mRNA that they got? Thanks, Tommy. So actually, let's take a step back and let's look at SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19 disease infection in people. Everybody is not affected the same way. Some people have very mild symptoms. Some people have no symptoms, so asymptomatic. Some people have severe symptoms with hospitalization or without hospitalization. People's uh, experiences with that, with the disease, have been different. And let's just put this into perspective that this is not unique to SARS-CoV-2. It happens with other uh, viruses or other infectious diseases as well. People have different symptoms and people have uh, different experiences with it. And if we all just go by our own experiences, then in some ways that are called anecdotes, because we don't have enough data. Yet it is well recognized that when we, uh, let's just focus on SARS-CoV-2 infection, that in people who uh, get that infection and have um, uh, more severe symptoms or severe outcomes in most cases, and it's uh, scientifically now there is data to support that in most cases, those people have other comorbidities underlying uh, health problems. So that is exacerbated. However, in a lot of cases, that adverse event is happening due to the toxic um, spike protein that's being produced by the virus. Now, if that is recognized that the spike protein produced by the virus when you get infected is having or causing some of these uh, cytotoxic or side effects, if you like, then wouldn't it be pertinent to ask that if you are giving a vaccine that is also making spike protein, wouldn't that cause similar overlapping events or effects? And as a scientist, or even as a lay public, you would say, yes, if part of the symptoms or adverse events from coronavirus infection is because of spike protein, whatever contribution spike protein has, because the virus has other components as well, but spike protein is recognized to have that adverse event from a viral infection, then wouldn't a pure injection of spike protein causing something that's going to make spike protein, wouldn't that cause that? So, it, and like I said, not everybody with the viral infection has those symptoms or adverse events or long haul COVID or whatever you wish to call it, um, whichever bin you fall under. Similarly with the vaccine, not everybody is going to have that side effect because of your own immune system. So, if you were, you know, truly, if we could have ourselves as our own control, then that would be an ideal experiment to conduct is that if 
without vaccine, if I got COVID, would I um, get, if I didn't have very severe COVID, only mild COVID, then probably if I were to get vaccinated, I would have milder symptoms because my immune system or no symptoms or no adverse reaction per se with the vaccine because my immune system knows how to deal with that. Whereas if you were in the bin where you had severe COVID um, and you were not vaccinated, then perhaps you would get some side effects from the vaccine. That's one scenario. The other scenario, and that is a scenario with probably the vaccines that are made from the dead or attenuated virus. But let's not talk about the mRNA vaccines or the uh, adenovirus-associated vaccines, which are giving you a portion of the virus that's going to make spike protein. So the adverse reactions in some ways are very similar for those uh, vaccines. So that's Moderna, Pfizer, which is the mRNA, and then uh, uh, AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, which is the, the adenovirus vaccine. And they both will make spike protein in using different uh, ways and means. So if the viral spike protein can cause adverse reaction in you, then potentially these will cause as well. But there are more issues with the, the, the vaccines because as we mentioned, vaccines are not given, the route of infection is different, right? So the, the immune cells that are going to first encounter those vaccines are different. Second is once the vaccines get into your cells, so the mRNA vaccines or the adenovirus vaccines, they are going to, just like the virus, hijack your cell's machinery to make the protein. So it's putting stress on the, the cellular machinery of your um, um, body, whichever part of the body the vaccine has gotten into, to divert that uh, machinery to make that protein. Right, so um, so then also we have no control over how much of that mRNA is taken by which cell type, and so if you were unlucky and the route of delivery was not really the deltoid muscle, but if it got misinjected into some um, into the blood supply through a vein or uh, some other into the lymphatic then there would be um, different side effects, if you like, obviously, because not everybody will have that injection in the same place. So if it does get make it to your um, uh, lymphatic or your blood vessels, then the cell types that may get targeted will be different from people who got the injection in the deltoid muscle. So if if you were that unlucky person who in whom the the injection went someplace else, then your chances of having an adverse event are likely higher because in those cell types, the the mRNA is doing or again diverting the resources to make the protein, which may not be very conducive. So if it went to your heart muscle, then um, or the uh, the pericarditis, uh, the covering of the heart, then it may direct it, uh, the resources to do something else because the heart muscles are very specialized to make only one 
you know, certain subset of protein. And so they don't, now suddenly they're lacking that, that machinery, right? Because you only have those many workers and instead of making the heart muscle protein, now they're making the spike protein. So it's going to have consequences for the, those cell types. So that's one, um, one more mechanism, if you like. There could be several things in different people, different mechanisms may operate. Um, the other issue which I talked about was the dilution issue, right? So what that means is, uh, and I drew a diagram, and I'm not sure if you can see it. So, yep, I can. so you see that there is the mRNA, uh, which is in the vaccine. And then those are mixed with um, the lipid, right? Which is going to encapsulate these mRNA. Could, could Dr. Bargava, could you bring it a little closer to the, to the camera? Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, so imagine now if you, you know, you know, you see those little kids playing with those bubbles. So bubbles, you take that little thing and you blow uh, bubbles. Yeah. Those bubbles are not of the same size. So some are big, some are small, some are. So similarly, when the nanoparticle, the lipid nanoparticle is being formed, which will then take the mRNA inside it or encapsulate it, or is called also called a payload, is going to differ depending on its size. Right now, that is all packaged as, you know, whatever, 100 micrograms. And then from there, you're going to dilute it. So when you dilute it, there is no way to control that in that particular dilution, you're going to get all the same size. Therefore, you can never be sure of what the actual concentration of the mRNA you're going to get. So is that, does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. So you could get basically very little dose in your first uh, dose, and subsequently, you know, people can get either, depending on where you are in that vial, you can get more or less. So some people, and most people got a um, more severe reaction with the second dose. And that could also be just concentration that the, the mRNA didn't actually get cleared from your cell, which was supposed to get cleared. Um, so, but the main thing is that, as I showed you, we don't have that control. And then the third thing, which um, um, Martha can probably elaborate more, is that if these nanoparticles were then to get into your circulation, which is in your blood supply, then they get coated with um, proteins, mostly albumin and other proteins, and then the size changes, and we don't know if they will release or where else can they be targeted. So uh, I'll stop there and let Martha take over. Yeah, um, that was an excellent overview. Uh, thank you. Um, so before I get into this, I do just want to um, clarify or have a disclaimer that what I um, represent here or say does not have anything to do with uh, Rice University or my affiliated institutions. Um, this is just based off of my previous experience and the research that I have um, been looking into even on my own independently. Uh, so as far as nanoparticle systems go for cancer research, um, we employ this system so that our cancer drugs or anti-cancer drugs aren't degraded um, when they're injected. So having a nanoparticle system allows these agents to circulate 
longer in the blood. It also allows slow release of the, of the drugs as well. Um, so you can have a system that is slowly releasing these agents over time to help target that um, tumor, to help um, decrease the size of that tumor. Uh, so for our lab, um, we were looking into, or um, we did do uh, some polyethylene glycol um. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coatings on particles. And this is a very um, common technique. If you look at polyethylene glycol or PEG, um, it has been around for a very long time. It's in household products. Um, you know, you can find it in cosmetics. Uh, so it is something that is FDA approved. And it has been now also applied to nanoparticle research or nanomedicine. And so essentially what PIG does is um, help to provide a neutral charge to your particle. So if you have a particle that is slightly positive or negative, when you inject that into a patient, that could cause problems with serum proteins, um, as we are um, discussing. So the idea was that if you coat these particles in PEG or polyethylene glycol, that this would provide a shield around um, that particle. And it would help bring the charge to more neutral charge to where then it would be um, less immunoreactive, right? So the idea was, you know, how can we create a system that can uh, increase the half-life of a cancer agent and provide a system of slow release, as well as something that would not be degraded um, by our bodies, right, or would not be immunoreactive. However, um, more recently, as I have been looking into, um, or kind of what triggered um, my hesitancy about um, the vaccines was the idea of antibodies against polyethylene glycol. So what's really interesting is, so when polyethylene glycol gets into the bloodstream, um, as Dr. Bhargava was saying, albumin, right, serum proteins will attach to the surface um, of, of the molecule. So even though it is neutrally charged, you'll still have some interactions with these proteins. Uh, you'll have more of this protein or protein absorption is what we call it um, to the particle if it's more positively charged, right? And that's going to cause um, a reactivity of your immune system. So you're going to have these serum proteins start to aggregate around these particles, and that's going to trigger to the body, right, that something is wrong. Um, that's going to signal to immune cells um, to phagocytize these um, particles. So the idea, again, was to provide a shell around these particles. Um, however, that does not necessarily 
um, mean that these particles are going to go undetected by the body. So it is a polymer. It is a biocompatible, is what they call it, polymer, but not biodegradable. So your body is interacting with it and has to decide where that particle is going to go. So proteins still can see it to an extent. Um, and you can also, that can also signal um, the complement um, activation, uh, is what they call it, of the immune system to signal secretion of these anti-PEG antibodies. Uh, so one reason um, uh, some people in the literature were suggesting that these antibodies may play a role, these anti-PEG antibodies, um, is the fact that, again, PEG is in household products, cosmetics, so we're introduced to it, um, to where our bodies could be developing a defense against it. Um, and so then you can imagine that if these particles, um, or if this vaccine has this uh, polyglycol coating around it, and it is brought into or the first injection, right, your body recognizes it um, and, you know, has to decide what to do with it. And maybe, again, it's the first time the body might be seeing it um, intramuscularly or, or to the systemic versus right on our hands or household products. So your body is trying to decide what to do with it. And in that time, it's creating or training your immune system to develop these anti-pig antibodies. Um, and so then... Imagine then when the second dose might come around, right? What might happen? Well, if your body has anti-pig antibodies, this could then cause your immune system to react, which would mean that now you have that particle um, exposed and being attacked to where then you could have a faster release of that drug and maybe more severe reactions, right? So instead of having a system that allows a nice, slow sustained release of, um, of of the protein or mRNA for our bodies to um, adapt to, it's rather more of a shock, right, upon the second dosage. Uh, so uh, there are currently, from last year, to, uh, 2021, a couple articles um, that have hypothesized these ideas that um, the hyperreactivity that we're seeing, or sensitivity that we're seeing in the vaccines might be due to this uh, polyethylene glycol. Uh, being in the vaccine. Of course, there are other ingredients um, within the vaccine uh, that could also cause reactions, right? Everybody's different. We have genetic variability. Even when it comes to anti-PEG antibodies, right, that could also um, have genetic factors as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a, there's a, a field that has looked at, it's called accelerated blood clearance. Um, is the definition of that um, second exposure to the pig antibody. Um, and this is going to cause a um, quick reaction of your immune system to clear it out of your system. So, <clears throat> so the effect of the first shot kind of does like a catch-22 with, with the second shot. Like, I just, I just interviewed an author this morning on his book about 9-11 called Only Plane in the Sky. And they talk about all the cleanup workers on like the lawn of the Pentagon, right? They're getting all the wreckage, putting out the fires. And I never knew this, but when they, when later in the day, when they found out that there was another plane coming towards the Pentagon, not, not Flight 93, they later found out it was Air Force One, but they didn't know that at the time. 
all the firefighters were told to abandon post. The FBI was like counting down. They're like, we've got inbound three minutes. We've got inbound two minutes. So they all actually went and hunt, hid under a uh, highway overpasses, sort of like a makeshift bunker. Meanwhile, the building's still burning. There's still people dying inside. But then the plane came and they realized they're like, oh, wait, it's like blue and gold. Oh, it's Air Force One. So it's that might have been a horrible analogy. But it was like the effect of the first one for everyone to come in and help all the firefighters, the EMT, the FBI. That very same thing is what kind of caused it to not help. I'm realizing as I go further, this is a terrible analogy, but I think I tried to get my point across. Dr. Bargova, save this for me. Well, I'll, I'll save it for you, like saying it's actually, let's, so there's a crime scene and every time you see uh, cops and then if your association is only, if you're looking at it in a very parochial or narrow view, then you would call cops the bad guys because they're always there. So in some ways, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? So you associate cops being there with every time there's a crime scene. Got it. So if you're not objective about it, so I think some of these things, for example, the pro-inflammatory cytokines get that bad name because they are there once there, there is infection. But they are there actually to uh, get rid of the pathogen or the invader. And it's when they are not uh, brought back into their, you know, once they've done the job, if they don't come back down to their normal levels or disappear, that's when they cause problems. So in terms of, you know, like Martha is saying, PEG, and um, I, I redrew this and, or added PEG in here. And the reason, so the lipid is actually attached to this PEG or polyethylene glycol because um, for some of the reasons that Martha mentioned. And the main reason that the mRNA needs to be encapsulated is actually to protect the mRNA, just like um, Martha was saying for delivery, because mRNA is very, very susceptible to being degraded. So if it wasn't protected, if, you know, in the lab, when we work with uh, mRNAs or any RNA, you, you know, you cannot touch them with your bare hands. Your bare hands have your sweat, which have RNAs, which will degrade them. As we speak, there'll be RNAs that will degrade them. So normally when we work with RNA in the lab, we are really paranoid. You clean the space, you have to clean it with special uh, agents to get rid of any remaining um, RNAs around and you work in a really clean environment, you treat your solutions with special uh, uh, chemicals um, which will inactivate RNAs. So the other surprise to me is that actually none of that is happening. We are taking for dilution, we are just taking off the shelf saline and diluting it. Uh, people have seen so many images of people being injected uh, or given this with bare hands. And the rationale given is, oh, well, it's protected inside, so it's not being degraded, maybe. But uh, we also went through freestyle cycles. And one of the ways we lice uh, or break open the cells, and the cells have a lipid membrane, just like these lipid nanoparticles, uh, it, it has... Uh, um, those same similar kind of lipids. And one way we broke, break open those lipid uh, uh, cell membrane is to freeze thaw, is to take, 
take those uh, cells, throw them into liquid nitrogen or really cold temperature, and then warm them. And when you warm them at room temperature, that shock will break open the cellular membrane, which is also a lipid. So why wouldn't these lipid nanoparticles, when you store them at minus 80 and you take them down and bring them to room temperature, why wouldn't they uh, lyse or break open and release the content? And if the content is released, which is the mRNA, which it was supposed to protect, then that mRNA may not be um, protected and may not be um, uh, able to translate or make spike protein. And so in some people, if the mRNA got degraded because of um, bad storage or bad handling, then it may not even make any protein and may not even uh, have an adverse reaction. So um, there are many, many reasons why it could happen. It could be for different reasons in different people. It uh, So it's really difficult to pinpoint one, it's not just one reason. There are just so many reasons why things could go wrong or why things uh, could go right. Martha? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, as uh, Dr. Margava is mentioning, you know, so many things and, you know, when you think of, uh, so overall, um, this is the first time this system has been used for a vaccine. Right, so this is the first time this platform has been um, applied to uh, a vaccine that you know is given to the general public. So that is where I can understand the hesitancy. Right, this is a. It's the way I think of it is that it's more of a therapeutic, right. Um, because of what I've mostly been exposed to is nanoparticle formulations for cancer therapies. So, you know, there are, are common um, nanoparticle systems for cancer therapies or, or um, liposome uh, formulations like Doxil. Uh, so there are products um, out there. However, that is for um, cancer patients and they also uh, you know, even now in the literature, there are people who analyze and look at these products or these therapeutics and can realize the pros and cons of these products and therapeutics. And so I think that's important for us to do here is that I see this as a therapeutic that we need to look, sit down and analyze and that it's okay as scientists for us to, you know, pull out these different aspects of the vaccine. Like the, you have the mRNA, you have the, um, yeah, the, the liposome, you have the PEG, right? There's all these different factors. And so, you know, I, I, that's where it could be the reactions that people are facing could be a combination. It could be more one versus the other. And at this stage, right, nobody really knows. We'd have to do more research and have, you know, a critical analysis of these different components and be able to speak about it. Um, that, that's where I come from. That's where uh, some of my frustration was um, coming from in the beginning when these were being developed. You know, I thought, oh, this is an interesting way to approach it. Um, again, then seeing nanoparticles for cancer studies. Um, so it was to me kind of a surprise that this was being addressed for a vaccine, um, that this technology was. This is the first time this is happening. Um, so 
if it's the first time, right, we should be able to critique it um, and really do a thorough, rigorous job of the science. Because, um, again, there's so many components and different pieces at play. I, I may think that the the pagulation part is what's important and what could be driving, you know, some of these um, uh, anaphylactic uh, reactions, um, but it could be something else, right? Something that I'm not as well versed in, um, like Dr. Oddity, or sorry, Dr. Bhagava, um, with the mRNA, right? So, Dr. Bhagava? Yes. So, so to be to be fair, I mean, it's been it, mRNA technology has been tried for different vaccines, including influenza, Zika, HIV, in um, in in this kind of formulation, but it has never uh, progressed beyond phase one or phase two. So, uh, in uh, in reality, yes, this is the first time when it's been given in such large quantity to general public. The issue really is that, you know, we have those randomized clinical trial phases so that all this can be looked into what Martha was saying. So biodistribution and toxicity and, and uh, clearance and all of those things. Unfortunately, these things, these these aspects were not looked into because of the so-called emergency use, because of the at that time the urgency to deal with what was happening or what. Uh, but the fact is that um, Pfizer and Moderna have been granted now full use, so they're not um, under emergency use. There are commonality um, is granted. Uh, for Pfizer and then for Moderna, whatever they want to call it. However, those um, those vaccines have not been given to people, and they have been granted those licenses without actually requiring that the toxicity and biological the biodistribution studies be done or we have uh, get data from that, uh, forget animal now, we have so many millions of people. So not to even go there or for someone to ask that, that perhaps you can have uh, mistargeting of this vaccine uh, product, even that's considered now uh, misinformation, which is completely irrational. And, you know, it's like that why are these vaccines untouchable like they're not they are they are subject to the exact same kind of issues that any other drug development is and so the fact is that for none of the products before this there was complete ignoring of all these other processes like i said toxicity pharmacokinetics biodistribution we don't have that for every time you see their document, it says is not required for emergency use, but it's no longer an emergency. We, re we recognize that it's no longer an emergency. Shouldn't we put a pause to it and then say, let's re-examine the data and look whether or not these problems exist. Why are so many people having 
um, to uh, and to recognize that there is adverse event. So if you recognize that spike protein from the virus can cause an adverse event, then how does it make sense? How, how can you ignore that the spike protein from vaccines will not cause adverse events or will not have similar issues? So isn't it time to pause and really think whether is this the right target? Perhaps, you know, the technology, mRNA technology may have a lot of promise, but maybe we need another target to look at for uh, having a better vaccine. Because when you give the whole virus as a, a dead virus as a vaccine, your body decides what part of that virus does it want to work with to make antibodies for future protection, just like when you have natural infection. That option is not there. So, and like I said, when you have a natural infection, there's a root of infection. And that root in this case is nasopharynx. And the immune cells that are there, they are specific to that particular organ or tissue. And they have a particular way to deal with the invading pathogen, which your muscle immune cells may not have or your gut immune cells may not have. So um, it's a completely, um, when people use the analogy that, you know, vaccines are better or they can do this, it's not, it's not true. The vaccines, the vaccines don't always evoke the full complement of our immune system either. So there are lots of prob problems that are there. And instead of saying that there are no problems with this vaccine or with this technology that we are perfect, it's doing a disservice to everybody. And we need to recognize that and say, okay, we, we've gotten over this. There, are, we need to now take a step back and really relook at all the data and see where we stand, and then improve it instead of just saying, "Oh no, we have reached our best," which we haven't. And in fact, uh, just um, yesterday, I was reading about the CRISPR technology, which you know, when it first came out, again, people didn't want to talk about anything negative with it, and if anybody, you know, we were observing that we would get chimeras meaning it didn't always do what it's supposed to, and there were a lot of off-target effects. But nobody reported those off-target effects, and if they were in their, in their papers when they published the data, they only cherry-picked the data that fit that narrative and ignored all the, the negative data. And there were a few people who were reporting that even if you look at you know how many times this uh, the mistarget was happening, or you know there were chimeric uh, um, cells that were being formed, and so you need to really uh, take this technology with its caveat and think about it. But but no, I mean again we get so um, what's the right term? We get so myopic blindsided like you know the, the deer in the headlight like we are so uh, that technology is so great you know we don't want to see anything wrong with it uh, it's a uh, and that's why we had that uh, Theranos saga where Elizabeth Holmes was able to convince um, and actually a bunch of non-scientists that she could take a little drop of blood and give you a hundred things about, which was like the first time when I heard about it, it was 
completely outrageous, but people so wanted to believe in it. And that's the problem. We, Because of the fear that has been generated for this virus, we so want to believe that we are doing the right thing, that the vaccines are going to be our saviors. And that's, we're forgetting that our actually immune system are our saviors. The vaccines don't work on their own. They rely on your immune system. If your immune system is compromised, there's nothing, you know, it's not, it doesn't give it a superpower. It's your immune system that gives you the superpower. And that's where um, the concern is also for the kids, right? The more exposure you get in the normal way, the more it trains your immune system. Your immune system, the long-term memory immune system comes from training of the immune cells in the thymus. And thymic function in humans decreases as we age. So you are, if you were to get an infection, you would be much better equipped. Your thymus would be much better equipped at training and producing long-term memory cells than my thymus would be. So um, that's why you need to focus on a subset of people who may be more vulnerable and you may want to train them. And then there is also that aspect of what is called the original antigenic sin, which is if you get bad training or if you get a very narrow training, then your immune system doesn't want to work either. It always wants to just gravitate towards that. And instead of you know generating a very robust and broad um, immune response, then it'll say, I will just focus on spike protein. So that's why all the virus has to do is to change the spike protein and then it will evade it because now your immune system has been badly trained. It doesn't want to do that hard work either. It's no different than anybody else. It's taking a shortcut. And so is that really what we want to do to our children? Is that really socially responsible? We have to ask. Sometimes it's like, you know, you can't learn to ride a bike without falling or getting hurt. Or maybe these days you can because of the training wheels. But let's you know, look at another example. You can't become a black belt uh, without sustaining some injuries or without having to uh, pay a price for it. So here we are. We want to be... Um, we want to basically say that we, we don't want to get this disease and we want to have the best immunity and we don't want to pay any price for it. That perfect world doesn't exist. If anything is too good to be true, it is. It, um, I'll try to, I'll try to save myself with a better analogy this time, but it's just death and destruction, but it's like, um, <clears throat> it's like FDR authorizing the construction of the atom bomb, with the Manhattan project. Leo Szilard and Einstein come over from Germany and they're like, we need to build this or else uh, the Nazis will. And they're doing this whole thing. And despite even Oppenheimer, despite the top guys, they were actually taking bets the morning it was detonated, July 16th, 1945 in Alamogordo, New Mexico. They had bets that it wouldn't work, that it would work all right. And the third option, which they put at 33%, was that it was going to ignite the atmosphere of the world on and, and burn everyone alive and kill everyone on the world. But they looked at it like we're in this world war. We're fighting the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese. There's already 50 million people dead. Go for it. And they, they gambled and it worked. And we used it and it ended the war. And Dr. Bargova, like you said, it's, it's this big pandemic. It's here. We need emergency youth authorization. Don't question it. And it, in very, and it very much so did end the emergency. 
it ended the war. But what we could say is that several years later during uh, uh, the Korean War, when General MacArthur said, let's use it again, I want to drop 12 on, uh, on Korea, well, Truman fired him and said that's insane. And that's kind of like the criticism that was allowed to be talked about and discussed that we can't do now. It's a great, great for the emergency. The thing worked, right? But it's not applicable to every situation. And that's kind of what I'm seeing from it is, whereas they did talk about it and ultimately reined it in, I mean, and nuclear weapons haven't been used since 1945, this is like an example of if every time a skirmish happened, there was a nuclear weapon. And eventually you got to talk out and go, guys, I don't think this is good. And someone goes, misinformation, nuclear weapons are great. And you're like, man, there's got to be another way. But I don't know if that makes sense. Martha, now it's your turn to save me. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, so again, it's a, it's an innovative platform. I would, you know, I would, I would say that, right. Um, but you know, to what Dr. Barba is saying is that innovation, right. Doesn't mean it's successful, right. It doesn't mean it's the best thing to do. Um, especially we're thinking that this, or right now the accepted idea is to also have booster on booster, right. To also have these elevated levels of antibodies in your system. And on top of that, you are injecting a platform that may also present some issues if it gets injected into the vasculature, right? So if the second um, round or dosage of the particles, um, you know, triggers this more severe immune reaction to this polymer. Well, you can just imagine down the road, if, if there's booster on booster, especially, you know, we're, we're speaking about children where now we're relying on this booster system rather than the natural um, infection to where there there is other machinery that could be just as important, uh, right? We They kind of saw spike and decided spike was gonna be the way to go, but it, it's a whole system, right? Um, there's going to be an advantage. Someone's going to have an advantage if they get through that unnatural process, right? And it also kind of lose that control group, right, of people that have been exposed to it naturally, including children. So now if we have a whole generation of, of folks who are now having a synthesized polymer with a portion Right, of the virus in there. And that's what we're relying on and building our immune systems on, on something that's made, man-made. We're going to be at a disadvantage long, you know, long-term. Um, you know, and in my opinion, also to say that this is, you know, this is the way to go. These vaccines work. You're also negating other um, labs and other um, uh, research uh, folks to come up with something even more innovative down the road, right? So we, we know that there could be um, cases, right, where someone is more susceptible um, to, to viruses, right? So, you know, perhaps there should be a system, you know, where we have the flu shot um, for folks. Uh, so down the road, you can imagine that, yeah, there would be something optional like that, right? So that's where they're, you know, I think 
innovation and for people to question this and to actually build upon it rather than saying this is the, you know, this is the holy grail, this is the one way to go, no questioning it. Um, that's why I had just such a hard time understanding the why can't I go investigate this and say, um, you know, you're long term, this this might not be the most effective way um, or most effective approach. So I'll say that I actually don't like political or analogies a lot, just because we never know when you're going to put your sure. foot in your mouth. But uh, in terms of, I mean, Oppenheimer suffered from huge guilt after yeah. he saw what it was used for. So sometimes in terms of, you know, what is academically looks really good may not work out really well in real life. And so there is definitely that by just saying that this is the best, we are also, of course, um, um, excluding the refinement of something that could potentially be really good. But I think, you know, you need to use the nu nuclear option when you need it. For example, you need it for really bad diseases such as, you know, Ebola or for, um, say, smallpox. But do you really need the nuclear option every time? It's like, you know, if you have a little house fire, do you really need to call the fire engine or fire brigade every single time? You don't. You can just douse it with something you have at home. So, um, uh, yes, or just a regular hose or whatever you want to have at hand. So um, there is more and more data coming out that, you know, people who've had... Uh, other uh, uh, infectious diseases, such as actually flu, uh, that provides cross protection. Uh, it has been known uh, from animal studies uh, fairly early on that, for example, monkeys, in which this uh, monkey is a bad model per se for COVID because they don't actually get uh, ever a severe disease, just like bats don't get. Uh, severe disease with uh, coronavirus too. But none, nonetheless, even if you're looking at mild disease, the monkeys, when they were given a bolus of this virus from a patient who had severe disease, only 50% of them developed um, the disease. So again, it comes to you and your immunity. They've recently done this actually experiment where they exposed deliberately people to coronavirus and they found that still only 50% of the people get the disease. So this whole, so who was giving this information then to say that, you know, you need to, or that every single person who's going to get exposed to it will get the disease or, you know, you need to isolate or you need to um, social distance. None of that seems to really in some way hold out because in these people, they were injected with the virus or exposed and yet they didn't develop the disease. So if they didn't develop the disease, whether you were now um, you know, five feet from me or three feet from me, if I was not gonna get that disease, it doesn't matter how far or how close you were to me or whether you were in contact for 10 minutes or 20 minutes because if after injecting the virus, I don't get the disease, there's no way you're gonna give it to me. So I think we really need to take a take a step back and relook at the situation. We are, you know, there's a reason why United Kingdom decided to uh, get do away with all the restrictions because 
really more and more data is showing um, that the vaccinated, as more and more people are getting vaccinated and there are very few unvaccinated left, which is, I think, really unfortunate because we need that group to be able to fully understand what's happening, is that the vaccinated people, there are more and more cases in vaccinated people. And when you hear about there is more hospitalization in unvaccinated, it's you need to ask whether is your physician sending you there or because you are unvaccinated. They they just want to be sure that nothing uh, untoward happens to you. So is that why there is more hospitalization because of ultra precaution that the physicians are taking? And maybe they're doing a disservice to the unvaccinated, to the fully vaccinated with um, comorbidities because by not taking care of them. So uh, when you don't look at there are so many variables, there are so many differences between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. You cannot say that it's because they're unvaccinated that they're being, there are more hospitalization. It's the bias. If who, I mean, if you were. If you didn't have severe disease, you wouldn't even go to the hospital. If you didn't have severe flu, you wouldn't go to see your doctor, right? So um, it depends on how you've been primed. So I think um, just coming back to because this disease, look at the name, severe acute respiratory syndrome. How many people actually who have gotten COVID had severe acute respiratory syndrome, I, a small subset. I have, COVID, so, I have COVID right now, and I've been to the gym every day this week. Oh, that's not good. But, no, but anyway. what, what I mean is, no, but I think it proves your point. I'm 31, but I could have very well, I mean, I interviewed Paul Merrick on Monday, and he talked about how the last patient he had who died before he retired was 31. So to me, that does show the, the insane... Sp- Sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. Yes, no, I mean, it's it's great that you were able to, you know, take it in your stride if you like. It's an empty but, gym, by the way. It's a little apartment complex. It's empty. I'm the only one. That's it. No, I'm not talking about, I'm not so, I mean, worried about you giving it to somebody else because we just discussed that and it was injected in people. And I'm sure you're taking those precautions nonetheless for whatever they are worth. But what I'm saying is that when you're sick in general, you don't want to be diverting your body's resources by, you know, exercising. That just seems a little, I mean, if you didn't have a choice, then yes, of course, you know, for example, if um, when I have my little kids and I'm, I couldn't afford to be sick. I mean, I really don't remember, maybe one time I remember being sick because, and if I'm sick, who else will be there to take care of them? Then you have to do, but given a choice, I would rather just, shut the door and sleep but then you always hear this mom mom i need this mom i need that so um then that's when the reason you have fever and you feel uh, pain or whatever it is is your body's way of telling get some rest because if you didn't you would overexert and you know overuse things that shouldn't be used just like pain pain you feel pain because it's telling you you're hurt and you need to stop doing it, right? So if you didn't put your hand on your finger on the top of a flame and if you didn't feel pain, you wouldn't remove your finger and then you'll get burned. Is that really good? 
No, so it's, it's, you know, it comes with both parts. So similarly, getting sick, if you're getting sick, it's not the end of the world. That's how your body learns and prepares you for the next um, um, infection. And in some cases, better prepares you because there's more and more data coming out that people who've had other viral infections, including common flu, are better protected for COVID. So by um, uh, taking vaccines for everything under the sun, you may not be actually doing, um, you know, you can't use, like I said, you can't use nuclear option for every um, garden variety of uh, infectious disease. You have to save it for the ones that are really lethal and then let your immune system get trained for the ones that are just your garden variety. And, um, you know, it may not have started off as a garden variety COVID, but it definitely has turned into one where most people are able to deal with it and we should let them deal with it. So okay. I will two, two, two end quick, here. Two quick points. I want to say about the nuclear options. I've interviewed Stephen Hatfield, Dr. Stephen Hatfield and Dr. Malone, and that's one thing they talk about was mRNA was these programs were started, um, I mean, really amped up in the wake of 9-11. They needed something that maybe it wasn't going to be perfect and maybe there'd be a lot of adverse rea- uh, reactions, but it was like, hey, if we get hit with a bioweapon, we need to have a vaccine in like 48 hours. So yeah, you're right. You can't use it every time. On a much bigger picture, my so God. I'll add to that because yeah. some of people have asked that question, why not use the traditional vaccine? And you actually, uh, like you said, that because mRNAs and the other recombinant viral vectors are much quicker to produce and you can um, uh, scale them, whereas the virus, when you grow it, it, it takes its own time. You cannot rush it to replicate. You cannot... Um, if it's, you know, if it's growth time is five days, it'll take five days. You cannot make it grow in three days or two days. So whereas the mRNA, uh, you can, because it's uh, made in the lab in vitro, you can make, uh, you can scale it up. So so it, it did make sense to perhaps try something that would, uh, that's scalable, that can be made available. But we have to uh, recognize that this, particular mRNA vaccine is mostly used in the Western world. In other parts of the world, there are these other vaccines used, and we seem to be forgetting or not, uh, we're we're so obsessed with this mRNA vaccine, or we're so obsessed with what's happening here, that we are forgetting to analyze, did the other vaccines actually have a better efficacy, did they, or they were worse? We don't have that data either. So to be fair, we need to be able to look all of that and then go from there, learn from it and say, for the future, which is the best way to go? And if you need to tweak this technology, then we do. So go ahead. Sorry, make your second point. No, no, you're fine. For both of you who are active researchers, for me, my concern is something on a like much larger scale. And it's I feel like we are introducing this precedence of uh, like thou shall not question the misinformation or thou shall not spread misinformation. Thou shall not question the science. And as we all know, that's not how science goes. You, you, you have to attack it and figure it out. What is the, you know, what is the answer? We know the world is flat, right? We know humans can't fly. We know we can't go to the moon, all these things. If we introduce this, and again, you could always justify it. You could say it's a pandemic. We had to squash the opposition because the greater good. Sure, you could go down that rabbit hole. 
but all these all these emergency precedents throughout human history always end up getting abused. And so my concern is, well, what comes around? What about the next uh, the next equivalent to Oxycontin produced by the Sackler family? It's safe and effective. Nobody talk about it. What's the next thing that's coming down? And it doesn't have to be something evil, but just maybe an antibiotic or a, or a contraceptive or, or whatever. What's the next thing coming that might have legitimate side effects, but you can just jump on it and say you're spreading misinformation? That, that, will, be, that will be abused by, by corporations with fiduciary responsibilities. It's just a dog is going to chase a bone. It's just what it is. And that's that's my fear is where does this go? We've already we've already kind of all accepted. I haven't clearly because I've been banned from YouTube, but a lot of people have accepted, hey, big tech said that's misinformation. That's done. But what about what about when you're right? Like so that's my concern. And I want to know both of y'all's concerns as active researchers, but we haven't let Martha talk for like ten minutes. So Martha, your thoughts. Uh, so, you know, and Dr. Bhargavan knows this as well, when you're in research, you are questioning one another a lot. I mean, when I go to lab meetings and present data, I'm being, you know, dragged through the rails yeah. and the coils, right, on what, what I did and, uh, you know, what the data means. And I think that's good practice. I think that... Um, you know, we, we need to do that with one another and have these open discussions. I think that's what, what is so weird about this situation is, you know, you're having individuals, physicians bring up concerns and, right, you bring up concern about any other medicine or any anything in, in research, right? And it's really not a big deal, right? We have papers that or scientific research, right, that argues both sides of things. And that's appropriate. I, I feel like that's, we need to maintain that and for some reason, which I, it's, it was hard for me to understand why suddenly it took this turn of, you know, because I was even seeing it with people that I knew of, you know, you're, you're questioning it. You can't, you can't do that. Um, you know, that's anti-vax. And, and, and to me, it was just absurd. And I, I, you know, cause I even told them like, we question each other during our meetings. Um, you know, all the time we're transparent about our data um, and that's, and that's how it should be. Um, it, you know, it's the same thing with, uh, I think, right. I've, I've heard this in a previous podcast, but when we discuss negative and positive results as well, right. The, that we have to also discuss the negative right? Not only report on the positive aspect. If I went into a meeting every week and just reported the good stuff, that's not helpful, right? That's not going to bring us to the next step. That Being a good researcher is acknowledging the bad and building from the bad, right? You build something better. Otherwise, you're just, there's never going to be progress, right? So, you know, I think too is that these, right now, science is even articles, right? Not all scientific literature is um, uh, is available to the public. So it's actually up to researchers to relay this information as well. So some research articles you have the option to make available to the public or have it, you know, have open access. Um, but that's not the case for everything, right? So when we discuss, you know, when we're here, 
discussing research, you know, we're talking about um, research that we're able to cite that other people have done from opposing sides um, that maybe the public doesn't have access to. And even that, even that, in my opinion, I'll probably go down a rabbit hole, but even that for me um, was a, it is a bit rough to understand. I know um, I, I've been to conferences that were a mix of the public and uh, research um, faculty. So you had the chance to present to a public group, um, uh, the general public, as well as people who were in your field. And the questions can be very, very different. And sometimes, the, you know, the general public notices things that even the science, you know, scientists that I was speaking to didn't notice. It's why it's important to really discuss everything and be transparent about your work. Um, you know, no matter what, what uh, job you do, right? I mean, you have to be an honest, you know, you should be an honest person and be openly discussing um, what you did. And even if it's a negative result, right? You, when you present, you discuss what now you're going to do differently and how you're going to make that better. Right. So I want to say that, first of all, none of this is misinformation. Anybody can fact check whatever we've spoken here. If they, if they want to have an um, honest debate, they are welcome to have a debate. And uh, like Martha said, if she was, you know, she's not my graduate student, but she approached me because she was feeling stifled. And if, for example, if she was presenting this in the lab meeting and she would say, well, I dissolved this nanoparticle in 10 millimolar tris. My question would be, Martha, why did you choose 10 millimolar concentration? Why tris? Why not something else? Did you try that? Did you, did you, is it more stable in it or did you try something else? And Martha would say, well, I actually tried 1, 10, and 100, and I found that this at 10 millimolar concentration, they were the most, you know, stable, they were most whatever. But so, so we would have that data that at 1 millimolar, it didn't work or it worked, but it was not as effective. And at 100 millimolar, it was like really horrible. So those would be considered negative data, but you wouldn't see that mostly in any publication. It would just say, oh, in our method, we would say, oh, 10 millimolar, we resuspended them in 10 millimolar tris, and you know, lo and behold, that's not how it happens really in real life, but that would be the normal process. Now, would that would you consider that as misinformation or not? Uh, not uh, believing in science? No, that's the normal process because she would have to try different things. She would have to try different controls. She would have to try different solutions. She would have to try different, um, you know, lipid polymers or different sizes of keg. There's just so much that goes into it, but not all of that gets reported. And then, you know, the question is, so, so there's definitely that. And, uh, even the data that's being presented, I actually have now started to do this, is to analyze some of the papers that are that make the uh, into the public domain, meaning they get picked up by the general the media, and then they're hyped and hyped and sound bites you hear. So one such paper was that, of course, that there are no side effects from the vaccine. It was, um, I think, a JAMA paper. And I have it analyzed in my blog. Now I've analyzed many papers, so don't hold me that it was JAMA, but let's just say I, I think it was JAMA or maybe New England Journal of Medicine, but one of those two uh, journals. And uh, when you look at what their analysis was or their cohort was for looking at the side effects on the vaccine were people who were vaccinated 
and 1 to 21 days after the vaccine or 40 to 60 days after vaccine. You cannot compare vaccine adverse event to being vaccinated 1 to 20 days and 40 to 60 days. You need to compare the adverse event to an unvaccinated group. How can you then say that the vaccines are safe? And yet, that is the study that is being used to say that the vaccines don't, the mRNA vaccines, in this case Pfizer, vaccine does not have any side effect. Now, if I, I request and I challenge even the general public can understand what is a good control. Without a control, what is your comparison? Mm-hmm. And you cannot compare just vaccinated state to another vaccinated state and say, well, there were no dif- the adverse events were not different between one and twenty-one days and twenty and forty or whatever days, and therefore the vaccine has no adverse events. That's not the way it's done. That's not how you compare and say. And that's when I question that why did they fold the placebo group within two months of giving the vaccine? Where the clinical trials stated that they were going to follow for two years. They haven't followed anybody for two years. So there are lots of problems, but, you know, let's, um, I think we're starting to repeat ourselves at this point. I think uh, I probably said what I no, had to say. No, you're fine. I was, I was going to say there's this weird sort of symbolic meta theme in that, as we push science forward and say it can't be questioned, it becomes less of a rigorous airtight pro- uh, process. And it's much like protecting someone from all outside influences, like, you know, like a kid that lives in a bubble. It's like you do, your immune system is going to be so weak. You have to be exposed to this stuff or you're going to get taken out by the first serious disease. It seems like that's where science is going. It's, there's no more questioning anymore. And so, sure, it right. feels good. Yeah. And sorry, Jen, but I, before I forget, because I want to make this point somewhere I read our, uh, one of the California um, elected official when she died, she was unvaccinated. And there, I read um, media reports of ridiculing her that she deserved, you know, her to die because this is. Um, one of them even went ahead and said, uh, oh, survival of the fittest. So by taking the vaccine, you're not survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest means your natural immunity. So if the vaccinated people think that they are surviving and then they are survival of the fittest, I'm afraid that's not what that means. They need to relook at the definition of what survival of the fittest means. So I think, and to justify, I think, you know, it's it's almost become like they're using vaccines to ridicule people who question anything. And I'm, I'm definitely, you can't call me uneducated. You can't call me, um, you know, I, I really don't want to go into the politics. I, I, uh, um, I, you know, supported Biden. I even worked on his campaign and to see him make that statement that this is the pandemic of the unvaccinated, it hurts me no end that, you know, he, he said that he would be the president for everybody. And yet here he is ridiculing, you know, seriously, if you need to bring people together, you need to, to look at, you know, their concerns and the concerns in my mind for people who um, choose not to get vaccinated or choose not to get the booster 
even if they're not asking the right the, the right scientific questions, their concerns are valid. And you cannot just dismiss them by saying that they are uneducated or you put them in one bin versus the other. I think you are doing such a big social disservice by um, by um, completely suppressing any asking of the questions. Mm-hmm. That's not democracy. That's not science. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I didn't get vaccinated. I, I didn't want it. And it's also, you know, m- my dad, my dad's fine. But when he was 40, he had a heart attack that should have killed him. He had the widow maker. Males in my family die at 40. I'm 30. So I'm already like exercise, stay healthy. I don't want to take something that, you know, when I interviewed Dr. McCullough, the most published cardio renal physician in the world was like, no, young men shouldn't take it. Why can't I go, hey, guys, I don't want to play this game of Russian roulette. If you want it, that's fine. But yeah, that's not that's but that's not a personal thing. And I don't want to get into that. But um, yeah, but but to what you said, it's it's that's also just not like you don't turn people away. It's it's your own decision. You do whatever you want. It's but yeah. And uh, well, especially in light of the, you know, that vaccines are not preventing infection. You, they're not spreading, preventing transmission. And the fact that this new study shows that even if you take naive, you know, unvaccinated people and you expose them to the virus, only 50% of them get it. So with all of that, we need to get a grip on ourselves. We need to re-examine this and stop judging people and stop creating divides based on the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and, you know, whatever new thing that will come next you know, boosted or unboosted or whatever it is. So let's just, um, uh, you know, and I'm glad that Martha reached out to me and hopefully, you know, we can um, continue to be colleagues and at some point um, meet you in person, both of you. Yes, definitely. We've boxed boxed you out again, Martha. You have any thoughts on that? And then we'll wrap it up. (laughs) Oh, no worries. No, um, I totally agree. You know, it's, I think it's strange to be um, where we are, right, 2022, and still separating people based on a status and, and, and you know, especially, you know, the fact that it's even happening in the science communities, you know, where it's, it's happening uh, everywhere. And, you know, we just, at least I, I didn't really, you know, see that it's coming. Um, and it's... It's something we need to move on from, you know, as, as Dr. Margava is saying, uh, you know, this, we're creating such friction, right? The more that you pick at a wound, right, the worse it's going to get, right? So, you know, the way I see it is it, it's, it's very plain and simple of, well, look, we're still at the stage. We're still questioning things. Um, there's still an unsettled unsettled hypotheses within the vaccine and uh, what it's doing. And, um, you know, with, with the mandates, all of that, you know, it just, it gets into IC and uh, IC territory. So, yeah, um, I appreciate um, Dr. Bhargava um, reaching back to me because uh, <laughs> uh, it was, it did feel um, quite, you know, isolated of, well, you know, there's like it can't just be just me in, in this 
science field. There's no way there's got to be more people. And you know, I, I saw her podcast and the work she was doing and, um, and it all made, made sense to me. Uh, good. There's, there are people out there that are, are speaking and that, you know, are not afraid to question the science and, and do what we have been trained to do, I'd say from the beginning. So I look forward to one day meeting all of you as well. And thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Beautifully. Thanks Tommy. Yep. Thank you guys. I will, uh, We'll wrap this up. I'll edit it, upload it. I'll email it to you guys. Should be up in like an hour. And uh, yeah, thank you both very much for coming on my podcast and uh, for putting up with my insane analogies as you guys are sitting here talking like scientists and I'm screaming about the Pentagon. Well, that's par for the course. But thank you very much. I look forward to talking to both of you again. And um, yes, thank you very much. God bless. God bless America. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Recording stopped. Thank you for your time. Take care. Peace.